a white person in, in any shape or form. And so I'm like, um, you know, there's not, you don't see this enough. You don't see people like me. You don't see brown women um, and you don't see brown men. And so, and that's what we're just trying to, you know, highlight and show that, you know, we exist, we're out there. We love the changes as much. Um, and not only that, we have, you know, our people have been doing this probably longer than your people. Natalie Davey, and you're listening to Women and Waiters, a storytelling podcast dedicated to supporting and empowering the community of fisherwomen and sharing their stories, honestly and authentically. Welcome back to all returning listeners and for any newcomers, thanks for your interest in this platform and community. Today I come to this episode with a lot of gratitude. For one, I'm really grateful for your patience as I navigate what it means to have a creative platform and learn the ins and outs of podcasting, while also still holding the role of a college student, beginning freelancer, and more. Balancing everything on top of this pandemic has been a whirlwind to say the least, but I'm grateful to finally start understanding the importance of self-care and breaks, and also realizing more and more every day the immense privilege in being able to say that. There are plenty of black and brown students and creators who undertake similar things, but have to face the burden of racism in addition to this every day. And there's another piece that comes into this too. As you may have seen on the Women in Waiters Instagram page, I had an episode already fully recorded and edited from my interview before George Floyd's death. It was my fourth grade teacher, an outdoors woman who shaped my understanding of environmentalism and what it means to break barriers as a femme in the fishing space. She is a woman I deeply admire, but because she is white, I couldn't help but feel like this story was not the one that we need to be tuning into right now. So I reached out via Instagram stories to see if anyone was willing to talk about racism in fishing on a podcast episode or something else, and I'm feeling so lucky and humbled that Erica Nelson of Awkward Angler on Instagram responded. Erica's sense of humor, coupled with the way she firmly yet gracefully holds people accountable, including myself, has opened up some really awesome points around how white supremacy has a grip on the outdoor industry and the fishing community, and especially how white women anglers contribute. It's sweet that she volunteered to talk to me, but I also want to say that she and other black and brown folks shouldn't have to educate me or take time to speak with me on this or educate other white women in this space. One thing Erica brought to my attention that I want to address was the idea of urgency and perfectionism in responding to this moment and how that has everything to do with my whiteness and white supremacy. For any other white or white passing creators, business owners, brands, or honestly anyone else listening who holds white privilege, we will never not have catching up to do, more learning to engage in, and more improvement to focus on. So trying to frantically educate yourself, put out something so you can check off a box, create something so you can feel like you contributed, and do everything you can to detach yourself from the fact that we hold dangerous racist thought processes is unsustainable and incredibly harmful in actually showing up for BIPOC in our communities. 
And another element to this is the harm in referring to the quote-unquote relevancy of such topics. I am guilty of this. The truth is, we should have been talking about this more all along, and I should have had this conversation long before George Floyd. Erica informed me that Sherilyn Sosi, a friend of hers and fellow ambassador of brown folks fishing, was also interested in being on the call, and I was delighted. Just in my first conversation with Sherilyn, I felt I was able to see further into these issues in ways that I hadn't examined before. I gained a lot of insight on things like familial proximity to whiteness, which she'll explain more in depth in the discussion. I'd also like to recognize that I tend to overuse guys and ladies, and just acknowledge that myself and others should do a better job of using more inclusive language. I want to give a general content warning for BIPOC listeners, because there are some areas of this conversation that could certainly be emotionally triggering. I will use my best judgment and let you know ahead of time before an emotionally intense area of the conversation. Super stoked and humbled to be joined by Erica Nelson and Sherilyn Sosi, uh, two awesome fisherwomen who are also uh, both Brown Folks Fishing Ambassadors. So thank you guys so much for taking the time and joining into this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Um, so, so just to give the listeners a bit more about you each, would you mind just introducing yourselves quickly and saying a word or two about your connection to brown folks fishing yeah i can start this is erica nelson uh pronouns are she her and i met tracy a couple years ago um just online and heard about what she was doing and at the same time i was also getting into fly fishing and um just kind of noticed the lack of representation and so i was really excited to join and be an ambassador so just kind of a, a quick story there. So found her online and um, yeah, was looking to kind of expand my community. So um, really excited that I got to meet Sherilyn and all the other ambassadors are pretty awesome. So I'm glad to be part of that community. Awesome. Yeah, and um, my name is Sherilyn. I'm just gonna quickly introduce myself in Navajo. Uh, Sherilyn Sosi Ganeshia, White Mount Apache Nishle, Tupahampashishin, Ashtin Bishate. Um, in Navajo, we're taught, you know, if we know how to introduce ourselves in Navajo. Um, and, and what I just said was that I am from about right now an Apache tribe. Um, I am born for the Edgewater clan, uh, which my father is. And then my paternal grandfather, it, father is uh, from the Salt clan. And uh, my paternal is... Um, from the Coyote Pass people. Um, and yeah, so I I have been fly fishing for about 13 years now. I met Tracy uh, from Brown Folks Fishing uh, right after she started Brown Folks Fishing. I went to a picnic that she um, was organizing here in Portland and I was just really excited to meet her. I was like, this is something I've been wanting um, to get involved with and wanting to see and I had told her that I, you know, had thought about organizing something such as this in the past. Um, I'm so grateful that Tracy did get it and have just a wonderful 
group of ambassadors that um, I'm very honored to to work with. Um, yeah, and so just been fishing for that long. I'm, and I always say, like, I am no means people hear that 13 years, and it means, like, um, people think I know all these things, and I'm, I feel like I'm still learning every day. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Um, I've, I've noticed over just uh, the short time that I've been in the, you know, the online fishing community, I've noticed that um, just the work that all of Brown Folks Fishing is doing and each individual ambassador is doing is just pretty incredible. So um, I'm, I'm so glad to be to be here with you guys today. Um, Yeah, so just getting right into it, I guess, um, if you guys want, want to just tell me a little bit about your experience, both of your experiences as indigenous women in fishing and how this has, um, you know, how your perception has changed from when you were first getting into the sport versus now or things that you have observed um, in the context of your experience. Um, yeah, I can go. This is Erica. I... Um, just kind of picked it up um, as a random hobby. So I moved to Wyoming and um, didn't really have, um, you know, um, I didn't know what to do or um, have many friends <laughs> at the time. So, you know, when you're just moving to a new area, trying to figure it out. So one of the things that I noticed around the area was fly fishing. And so I um, was fortunate enough to have connections to gear rentals, um, and so I picked up a fly rod and they had these kits all put together. So um, just kind of winging it and figuring it out and YouTubing and all this stuff. So I was kind of in my own head, in my own space. And just, um, I like to say I'm a Jane of all trades and master of men. I've done a lot of things in outdoor sports and outdoor recreation. Um, and so I like to kind of do anything and everything and kind of master it. And so um, picking up a fly rod was no different. And so, um, you know, as I started to kind of get a, a handle on it, um, I started to meet more people, um, you know, and then I kind of just had a, a moment of stepping back of, um, you know, how many tribes actually used to fish for sustenance um, and kind of thinking about the reason um, that other tribes have fished for so many years. And then I started to kind of notice this um, uh, lack of representation. There's a bunch of um, older white men typically in the sport. And so, um, you know, it's just like, what's the dis- there's a disconnect here, and I don't really know um, uh, why that is, considering that people of color and indigenous folks have been fishing for many, many, <laughs> you know, centuries. <laughs> so, um, you know, and then also considering um, when I recreate, I also um, like to kind of think of that as reciprocal. So, um, you know, respecting the water and the land, and we're called here to care for the area. Um, and not just take from the from the area. So I noticed that that was kind of an interesting. Um, uh, uh, like I would look at other people fishing, and they're kind of going out for the biggest, the best, you know. And I noticed that you know leaving trash or something around, and that really wasn't taking care of the land or the area. So um, that's just been kind of an interesting point of view. Um, and the more and more that I'm into it, I'm in my third year fishing. Um, noticing land and water restrictions and um, kind of that were all on stolen land that was indigenous land. And so um, uh, considering that that kind of um, takes a form of entitlement um, that I've seen a lot in fishing as well. So, which is one of the characteristics that I've seen 
um, in white supremacy culture. So this is mine. I'm taking mine. And whereas, um, you know, I have a relationship with the land and the water and, and kind of think about it more reciprocal. So um, just kind of the balance that I'm seeing um, in the difference right now. Yeah, yeah. There's so many good points in that. Um, I think that, like, even seeing some of the new leave no trace practices as if they're like this new thing um is just pretty interesting to me um but but yeah Sherilyn your your perspective there yeah so um when I when I was not into fishing at all and I didn't even give it really a second thought when I started fishing I didn't grow up um catching fish you know our tribe is not early fishermen, um, even if we have relatives of fishermen. It's not what our tribe relies on, um, the, the Dene um, Navajo, or the Apache, for that matter. But um, but once I started fishing, I there was something about being outdoors and, you know, being in nature, being close to the water, um, that made me start reflecting about, who, you know, who I am and where I'm from and things that I've been taught along the way that maybe I didn't really take in. Um, and it wasn't until that I started fly fishing, um, which I was taught by my partner. Um, but it wasn't until then that I really started to have a, like a deeper appreciation for, um, nature, for, you know, respecting the water, um, and which got me involved, like, you know, environmental things here in the area. And then from that, you know, just getting more in touch with my culture. So I feel like for me, a, a lot has changed with my journey through fly fishing, personally, on a personal level, um, just being more in touch with like, who I am and my culture and, you know, respecting um, Mother Earth. It's um, so I feel like I, I've grown so much through fly fishing and then a lot of it doesn't even have to do with fly fishing. Um so that's a big thing that I've noticed that has changed. And I always mention that because it's been such a like huge journey for me. And it's one thing that I would like to like be able to give back to like native youth. Um, because there are so many teachings of fly fishing, um, that you can take away. And, um, and I, and it's just really great to see other indigenous women. Like I didn't really notice that when I first started, um, it was really exciting to meet Erica through Brown Folks Fishing. And then we, we ended up finding out that we grew up in the same town, <laughs> went to the same school. Um, it's just so exciting when I meet other Indigenous women, um, and especially people who are from my tribe um, that are learning or, you know, that I can share this experience with. Um, yeah, so that's, you know, kind of how things have changed for me and how I got into other issues and, um just, you know, trying to bring a, awareness of the issues within the indigenous community and their fishing rights and water rights and and just even just representation within the industry, how there is a very big discrepancy of like us. Yeah. 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 Thanks. Um yeah, so if we want to get into kind of the nitty-gritty here, so um, what are some prominent cultural characteristics of fishing and maybe even fly fishing as a separate thing, um, whatever you guys think? How, how has 
white supremacy sort of created and perpetuated certain cultural norms that we see in these sports? So for me, um, this is Sherilyn, um, for me, like when I started fly fishing, um, I, I didn't talk to a lot of people. The only, the only thing that things that were taught were taught, um, that are things that are just within like just a norm within the fly fishing community. Um, and just fishing in general, like area Erica brought up earlier about, you know, having the biggest fish and, um, you know, just and and not until just recently really taking a, a look back at like where like where did that come from? Where did those the, the mind frame around that come from? And that um, it's not about that. It's really about making that connection. And it doesn't matter if you catch fish at all or how big they are. Um, it's being able to make that connection with other people, with you know, with the land being outdoors. Um, so that's one way that, you know, that I kind of perpetuated those, that framework. Um, I wanted to catch the biggest fish I wanted to do, you know, but it's not about that. And the other, um, that I, that comes to mind is, um, catch and release. Um, when I first started, it was all, you know, I would talk to other, um, like my family members and they, you know, they, well, they eat fish or something like, and I tell them, they're like, oh, you know, are you going to give us one? And I'm like, no, you know, I, I throw them back. Like I, I don't keep them. And, um, that was like instilled in me with a fun fishing community is like you release them. And, um, I didn't really give a second thought to like, you know, especially within the in Pacific Northwest that a lot of the indigenous communities around here, that's what they rely on. That's um, their teachings and traditions. And I just kind of overlooked that. And I would talk to indigenous people around here and tell them like, I fly fish, I do this. And um, not even realize I was just totally not out there all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I would probably say two things kind of come to mind. Um, one is individualism. And yes, fly fishing is a lone sport, <laughs> no doubt about that. Um, but it's not about just you. Uh, there's so many elements, um, you know, clean air, clean water, the health of the fish, the health of the water, um, you know, knowing the importance of where your watersheds are or, or where the water comes from um, and how to respect that and, you know, honor that. Um, also the health of the flies, the bugs, you know, and considering if we didn't have even mosquitoes, it's a relationship with all living things, um, that is so important, um, and how water brings balance in our, in, in life. So, um, you know, thinking about, um, you know, some, uh, anglers, you know, are just so individualistic and kind of bypass all of these living things that kind of come together to do the sport. And so the other thing that I would say is the effects that I see of white saviorism in conservation. And so, um, like, considering we can't keep ignoring colonial history, um, and then we also, um, I don't understand how we can continue having conservation groups um, not working alongside Indigenous leaders. And so, um, that's just kind of one thing that drives me crazy about these conservation groups, you know, trying to protect stolen land, but are not listening to Indigenous voices. And so, you see a lot of... Um, 
these groups have, you know, predominantly white men at the head of, you know, these um, organizations or on their boards, you know, and they're um, kind of hoarding the land and gatekeeping and really not having, it's not bringing a balance to any of our water or any of our land. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, I think that the gatekeeping thing is really huge. Um, and I've seen that in a lot of different ways in a lot of just different conservation groups outside of fishing too. Um, and I also, I was, I was laughing at the, the mosquitoes, bringing up the mosquitoes because I think that, um, there is, there's a lot of individualism in, going out and sort of just, you know, I find myself and I can attest for some other people saying, you know, focusing on the bugs and like, you know, rather than appreciating it as a part of fishing um, and just like really honing in on those things, like, you know, how mosquitoes are just the most hated insect. <laughs> and just, um, I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up. So what ways would you guys say that fishing in particular has more barriers to entry in comparison to other outdoor activities like just, you know, hiking or running or swimming or things like that? I think the biggest thing that stands out is um, cost. Um, yeah. Fly fishing is super expensive. Um, and so I think that's like one of the biggest hurdles. Um, when I started fly fishing and talking to my partner, he'd buy all sorts of things. And I'm like, you're spending a ridiculous amount of money on this. Like, that's not even logical. Um, <laughs> until I actually got into it and, you know, I'm spending all this money, but, um, not everybody has that access. Um, and so, um, that, you know, I, there's so many times that even when I want something or I need something for fly fishing, um, I'm, I'm having to ask or, um, it's like a hand-me-down or something like that, um, which is great, but not everybody has access to, to those options as well. So I think the, the biggest hurdle in getting into fly fishing, and I hear so many people who have said, oh, I've always wanted to try that, you know, and um, I mean, I know if they actually realized how much, you know, it would cost just to even, even just rent, like renting something, um, it, it would be a, a big hurdle for them. Yeah, I totally agree with Sherilyn on the cost. Um, you know, gear in itself is pretty expensive, and I think there's not a time that I don't walk out of a fly shop and I need new leader, you know, and then I'm like, oh, what, why is it happening? And then I'm walking away with $60 worth of stuff that I'll likely lose on a tree. So, um, yeah. Um, but also the, one of the things that was kind of a barrier for me was language and the way that people talk about it. Um, you know, I've had people say, oh, it takes years to learn or it's an art, you know, and, and yes, it is. And I agree. And it can be difficult, you know, considering your skill level, but at the same time, it's really, it's not that difficult. <laughs> you know, I kind of just went out and figured it out. Um, and I'm pretty proud of the skills that I've you know, have now today, kind of looking back at where I started. And I think if I didn't ignore um, those voices, I think that that would have stopped me. And I think that stops a lot of people is just thinking that it's hard because of the way that we talk about it. Um, you know, and then obviously, I would say representation, you know, nobody looks like us. <laughs> you know, I was so excited to be on the water with Sherilyn um, and just have that um, 
you know, that bond. One, we grew up in the same town, which was awesome, but also just another indigenous Navajo woman that I can fly fish with because that doesn't happen ever. <laughs> um, and so just, you know, the behaviors and attitudes that I see um, that go along with no representation. So because nobody sees anybody else um, like us, um, you know, it's awkward and there's really no sense of a belonging um that I haven't really found um it's it's getting better I think because I'm creating the space for myself but um you know if you're looking at black indigenous or people of color you know um there's not a whole lot of representation going on so you know when other white anglers are um seeing us on the water I've noticed I got a lot of stares and you know it just is really uncomfortable so that's definitely a barrier right right yeah um yeah and it's interesting kind of just varying on the location too because um you know when I was uh in this uh the Confluence Collective uh video calls that we're starting up um I noticed that a lot of the women were talking about uh you know being excited about being able to see women out and fishing and then we were discussing more of like okay so now that there are women out and fishing, like what can we do to get black indigenous people of color um, out here? And it was really interesting because I think that my perspective, even on seeing women fishing is different in upstate New York, because I still feel like there's, there's no women (laughs) fishing. And then, so it's just interesting kind of seeing just how it varies um, by the area and then just kind of looking back on some of the experiences I've had and really feeling like wow like I have literally only ever seen one black indigenous person of color when I've been out fishing in upstate and so it kind of tells you that some of these rural communities too and you know communities across the nation have have these very real issues um so yeah, I kind of want to dissect this a little just by gender here. Um, in what ways would you guys say that white men are creating and, and or perpetuating whiteness and exclusivity in fishing? Um, and what typically characterizes your experiences fishing with white men? I'd say I have um, three different types of stages just over the years. Um, I think at first... Um, it was a feeling kind of of that lack of representation and not feeling welcome, um, being stared at, you know, you're, you see a group of people that don't look like you, you know, um, and they're not really a whole, they're not really friendly, you know, I, again, I've noticed the fly fishing community typically stays to themselves. They, they stay to their own. Um, and so I've kind of had to train myself to just have tunnel vision focus on you know my day and you know there is many occasions where I pull into a space um, and turn around even driving over an hour um, just because there was already a group of people there and it was just intimidating for me um, and so just not feeling welcome um, you know I would just leave that space right away um, you know and then I think over the years I've had um, I've made friends um, you know with white men that have taught me a lot you know um, my I have a fish mentor <laughs> He's a 66-year-old white guy. Um, And we've had our heated conversations, um, you know, of unacceptable language. um, But we built a relationship, um, you know, and really kind of built a layer of trust to call at each other. And um, whether that's, 
technique, right? Of, hey, that backcast was too low, you know, you need to stop sooner, or language, you know, the way that he would speak was just kind of not acceptable, you know, and that's kind of turned into a relationship of um, being able to, um, yeah, have that space to call each other out a little bit um, to grow better together. Um, you know, and now that I feel like I've had a little bit more confidence in my fly fishing, um, I'm seeing more, um, um, I, I'm actually seeing white men on guides boats <laughs> that spend more time probably grabbing their flies out of the trees <laughs> or there's many, there's a couple of times that I've had to give crash course lessons to men, um, on rowing technique. Um, I just noticed that, you know, um, their boats would kind of spin a little bit. So, you know, it's just like, Hey, would you want, would you like some tips or perspective, you know, in your technique? And they've been really open, um, which has kind of been a relief, um, as well so you know i just kind of realizing that they're human also (laughs) they're not here to um destroy you know or to kind of um keep women out i think that's just a lot of self-awareness that they might not know about of how they carry themselves their attitudes and their behaviors um really affect that welcoming space you know they do dominate the space and so um really just kind of being more conscious on how they're carrying themselves or being welcoming and being friendly um you know it's just um it's kind of come a long way for me personally um i probably wouldn't say that that um um, is the case for every person um, or any other woman or woman of color on the water that has my experience. So that's just something that I've noticed throughout the years that I've been pushing. Yeah, I have to agree with um, Erica in in the fact that, that like, as I've um, kind of come into my own with fly fishing and gained a little bit of confidence, um, I'm more, like, I come into these spaces more like, just like I'm not gonna take, <laughs> I'm gonna take those. Like I'm not gonna pay attention to those stairs. I'm I'm not gonna feel inadequate. Um, because when I was first starting out, I really did feel that way. I felt very inadequate. I didn't want to like. I didn't even want to try casting. I roll casted a lot, which is great for a lot of instances. But I was doing it like all the time when clearly I should have been over casting in some situations. But I was too afraid um, to do things like that or. Um, even just talking to, um, like went into a fun shop and talking to the people who are working there because the, the majority of them who are working are white males. Um, and so, um, now I feel more comfortable in those spaces, but, um, when I first started, I didn't feel comfortable and I didn't always feel, um, comfortable going to the river. Erica is this, like, I feel the same way when she said that she goes, she has turned around in spots. Um, I have wanted to turn around, but my partner who taught me, who I'm still with, um, he is white. And so I feel like that really, it, in a way, kind of gave me an added, like, protect, protection, you know, for lack of a better word, that I um, I had him there. I didn't really have to worry as much. Um, but that also brought on a whole other level of, um, like, I felt like stairs. There was a lot of times where... Um, a person of color was with a white guy and I felt like that just brought on a whole another like another aspect of being stared at or um, and I've even had like no one's ever said anything to me um, but I've had people like I've been fishing and 
Um, it's like a really great spot and I'm catching fish and they like just kind of squeeze into like trying to push me out of that spot. And, you know, Ryan's been there to tell me like, Hey, do you want to go down or something? And I'm like, no, you know, like I'm fishing here. I'm not going to move for this person. I don't care. They can go somewhere else. Um, I like at this point won't kind of take that, but before I'd probably be very, be very, um, kind of scared in a way, um, and not want to, I want to put myself in those situations. Um, yeah. So I feel like, um, kind of some of the same things, but I also feel like I, I haven't had to put up with as much because I have a white partner. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, and I'm curious about this, uh, what have your experiences with white women been and, and sort of how does that differ and how in some ways might that be um, more harmful? Oh, uh, white women. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> if I see another group that ends in on the fly, I don't want to scream. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, most of these groups are, you know, women's groups. They're awesome, but they're not welcoming. Um, typically, when I see a women's uh, fly fishing group, I can automatically assume that it's only white women. Um, and, you know, I look at pages and, you know, they typically talk about diversity and they're pretty open about flinging that word around, but I don't think they know what it means. So a lot of the times I've heard you know, we have diversity in age or where we're from or body type, you know, and I think that's exciting and we should still celebrate that. However, there's so much work. There's a lot of work to be done um, around those groups and those spaces. And so um, I'm all for sisterhood and whatnot, but at the same time, that is very, that's pretty uncomfortable for me. It's pretty white, I would say. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And they typically build spaces that are made for them and them only. And so, you know, when I walk into these groups, it's um, extreme discomfort, um, you know, the way that we talk or the things that we talk about. And um, I've had a friend describe um, this to me, which really kind of makes sense. It's um, I see a woman kind of standing on the porch of a haunted house and she's super excited and friendly and, Hey, come on in, come on in. You know, we're all here. We're having a good time, you know, and I'm standing on the sidewalk of like that house looks really unwelcoming, uncomfortable, a little creepy, <laughs> like, no, thank you. You know, and so at one point, at what point are those women on the porch going to, you know, come down to the sidewalk with me and kind of take a look back and see what I see, you know, and kind of have share that lens that I'm looking at, you know, to kind of say, oh, this isn't a space that is welcoming. This is not comfortable. You're right, you know, and so how can we build a space for everybody um, that is inviting, Um, you know, and so I see a lot of, um, um, you know, invitations of let's go fishing, let's do this, and I'm really excited about that, but I'm also really uncomfortable, Um, you know, so just really kind of taking a step back and um, reflecting on what that looks like and how you could be coming off or how to be more welcoming. Um, you know, there's just so much work, um, to be done in that space. So, um, you know, I'm really excited that there are, uh, white women getting together and talking about all these things. And so I'm excited to see what kind of work comes out of that. Um, so yeah, I'm also, um, available to talk about this more, um, you know, on a, on a consultative note as well. <laughs> so, yeah. um, 
but yeah, just one last thing. A lot of these kind of lead, um, lead with intention or excuse me, they lead with, yeah, a lot of with their intentions and they're really polite about it. And I noticed that a, a lot about white women is they just want to be polite. Um, and really <laughs> that's not always necessary in yeah. every single case. And how can we focus more on their impact, you know? And so that's kind of a main message that I would like to say to any women really, um, you know, on the water, um, thanks, but also let's kind of, let's create the space together, you know, um, and, and focus on our impact. Yeah, that's a, it's a, that's a really interesting analogy you used with the haunted house. Um, I had never thought of it that way. Um, and I think that that could be really insightful for a lot of people, just kind of really taking a step back and looking, looking back at that. Um, and, uh, and also, the bit about intentions. I think that that is super, super important. Yeah. I mean, um, in, in my experiences with white women and white women led groups, um, I feel like a lot of it is, um, superficially nice. Um, I've been in an instance where, um, I, was one of the first people in, in a particular group. Um, and I was welcomed and I was like, Hey, you're kind of, you know, you're one of the first three people in this group. I would like to, you know, have a council or whatever. And, you know, we're going to start this organizing. Um, you know, we, we want you, since you're one of the first people in this group, can you start organizing with us? Would you like to be, you know, in kind of a kind of like a, for lack of a better word, leadership role within this group. And, um, and I was like, yeah, like, that's awesome. Like I want to reach more women. And, um, when it came down to organize, actually organizing, um, I was never contacted, um, yet other events were put on, um, and I always showed up. Like I, I went to these events, I put myself out there um, and was always willing to help other women because I love that. I love doing that for other women. Um, but I kind of had to put myself there. I was never like, what, like I was welcomed, but never welcomed to actually help or, um, recognize as somebody who did that within their group, um, or was there from the beginning. And that was just kind of disheartening. And I, and I have noticed that within, um, white women led groups is there's a lot of that. Um, and so I, you know, I have just taken a step back. And so I was really like, again, I was super excited when Brown Folks Fishing came out and, um, was finally just able to see, um, something where people of color were organizing this and, um, all of that is taken into consideration. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, a lot of times these groups are missing um, the active definition of, you know, intersectional lens. I think that a lot of times it's like really more focused on the diversity thing, but not about like equity and not about representation. Um, so I think that these are all really, really great points. Um so just broadening out a little more, what would you guys say are some ways, some stereotypical fishermen and fisherwomen 
are unaware of and careless about stolen land um, and kind of the rippling implications that this might have. I think it's kind of like, you know, Erica said earlier, um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of um, gatekeeping or, you know, don't tell someone asked, don't tell where you're at, um, private property um, that goes on within the fly fishing community. And then conservation groups you know i've asked um i've been to like meetings around here um within the pacific northwest about different things that are going on and i i have actually brought up the question many times you know what it you know what are the tribes doing or how are you working with the tribes and um a couple of those times they're just like well they're on you know they're on a different spectrum they're they're kind of fighting their own fight. And it's like, these are, these are things that are connected. Um, you know, why, you know, why aren't these discussions happening? Um, which has always just left a sour taste in my mouth. So, um, yeah, yeah agreed. <laughs> totally agree. Um, I also think by not acknowledging our country was founded on theft of indigenous lands, um, and lives and on the effect of that, um, black labor, um, you know, and that lives through slavery. So I think this leads to the entitlement continuation of oppression for indigenous people and, you know, gatekeeping indigenous people out of conservation and those conversations to kind of tag on to, um, Sherilyn's point there. So this I'm pretty sure can lead to legit catastrophe, <laughs> Uh, not even joking. Uh, yeah. We're seeing the effects of global warming when we're not working together and acknowledging that you know this is where this is our colonial history and this is what we've been through and how can we kind of uh, rectify that and work together? Um, you know that way we're not um, gatekeeping and leaving people out. And this is for you know the greater cause of why we like to go fishing, right? Like we all have this access. And so um, it's not working really well right now. And so I think by not acknowledging that is just continuing the harm um, and, and the erasure of indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that it's really interesting kind of bringing up the conservation piece there because Um, when talking about the climate crisis, there is this disconnect between, you know, environmentalism in general versus like the consideration of who it is impacting most. And so I think that that's, that's, it, it doesn't make sense that, you know, these perspectives of people who are impacted the most are the least valued and are, you know, not, able to get into environmental fields as easily or not able to take up leadership roles in conservation as easily. And it's just not. um, And also, I think that one other thing you said is kind of how like, oh, well, they're, you know, they're fighting their fight. And I think that that's so off because it's like, well, white people literally created this. So how in any way is this their fight? Like, you know, that's so backwards. So um, I think that 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 is prominent in a lot of ways um, in, in the way that people talk about it. 
Here's a quick warning to let you know that the next roughly three minutes of the conversation touches on connection to land versus exploitation of land and indigenous communities and may be emotionally triggering for some. And just, I kind of jotted down here the idea of connection to land versus the exploitation of land and maybe just talking a bit, of, I know we already scraped on it, but just a bit more about that. Um, yeah, I would say as Navajo, we strive to live in harmony and balance with all living things. And so to see things like Crystal Bay Pebble Mine or Dakota Access Pipeline, um, these things are destroying our waters, you know, in <laughs> all forms of life, which is just really painful, you know. It's, it's a hard one for me. <laughs> um, and to bring it kind of to a local level, um, I live in the Gunnison Valley you know, even saying Gunnison is exploitative to me, knowing that, you know, this was a name of a military officer and explorer in the 1800s. So original names are erased, histories are erased, you know, and, you know, anything that I um, look at in this area that I live in, history starts um, with gold, uh, gold mining and farming, you know, but that was because they kicked off the Ute <laughs> off of their territory. And so, that's a little hard for me um, to talk about that exploitation, you know. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I agree. Uh, I, I think of here in the Pacific Northwest, and we have, you know, our, the waterways here are used for um, transporting, well, bringing oil in, um, and um, they're really, the, you know, everybody here in the Pacific Northwest loves the outdoors. They love doing things. Um, but yet, there's so many things on decline here um, because the resources here are exploited. Um, you know, the forest is being cut down, which, you know, and, and, and you know, and, and we're taught, I mean, in Navajo and, and just in, in indigenous culture in general that everything is connected so you know like we can't just take you know the trees being cut down or um the water or the land as like these separate issues that are going on um like erica said we are taught to live in balance and if if, if, if any one of these spectrums is out of whack then it throws it throws the whole system off and um it was is really hard to hear. I mean, there's we have so many things going on here in the Pacific Northwest that have to do with fishing and the decline of the health of the water and the fish here. Um, and just yesterday, um, and one of the other things is the dams. Um, one of the dams here um, had an oil spill, um, and I don't remember what the how many gallons were, um, but uh, a significant amount into the Columbia River. Um, and so, like, what what are the, what are going to be the impacts of that? Um, especially since um, there are a lot of tribes uh, use that Columbia waterway. Um, I don't know. It, it is hard. It is a hard um, subject to discuss. It, it really is. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think that there are so many ways that environmentalism weave into this and understanding that these incidences are just adding to this you know 
terribly long list of things that are just sort of unnoticed by white people largely um, when it impacts others in a very significant way. Um, so, um, moving on to the next question, I have, what ways have you guys been able to reach people um, who have been racist in this fishing space? Um, <laughs> funny question, because for me, surprisingly, it's been on Instagram. <laughs> so I've, um, I received quite a bit of messages, um, on my Instagram account and surprisingly none have been super hostile, but there are racists, like, you know, you could tell in their language that they're using, um, you know, or their, their thoughts or are slightly racist, I would say, um, you know, but I have an attitude of curiosity, you know, and they're curious. And so how can we meet in the middle of, um, of having a, a conversation? And so I've been, I've been um, able to have really great conversations with a lot of people um, that were open to changing their mind and open to changing their way of thinking. Um, and so um, surprisingly, it's been fairly positive of, um, and I think it just might be, um, my, my curious nature as well is like, tell me more of what you, why you think that, you know, and, and kind of directing them to resources, you know, and typically they come back as, um, I read this thing. I totally get it. I apologize for the language I've used. And so I've had a really positive experience on Instagram with folks like that. Um, luckily I haven't really met, um, any, had any encounters, um, which seems to be popping up all over the place, right? Like videos and all this stuff. So um, I've been fairly fortunate to not have to um, experience that firsthand. So most of it has just been virtual um, Instagram type stuff, um, which conversations have been pretty productive. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, I haven't, um, I haven't really come into contact with anybody who is a overtly racist. I have had instances where there are some like comments um, and I've kind of just explained like for instance um, just explaining that I'm in brown folks fishing. A lot of times uh, people will pause and I know they want to say something and uh, and so then I'll kind of explain before a question is asked and mm -hmm. I like to think a lot of times that um, me just like explaining you know what that means um, that it is, um, it, it kind of changes their frame of mind. But I, I mean, I have been asked, like, or told um, when I've said that I'm in, I'm an ambassador for Crawfoot's fishing. That, um, well, you know, isn't that racist? Isn't that racist <laughs> in itself? And I'm like, no. I mean, I'm like, I'm like, okay. So take a look at the fishing industry, <laughs> just in general, like just think of an ad, you know, like it, who do you see or what do you imagine when you, and I'm like, you know, pretty much everything is in the eyes and displayed at, as a white person in, in any shape or form. And so I'm like, um, you know, there's not, you don't see this enough. You don't see people like me. You don't see brown women um, and you don't see brown men. And so, and that's what we're just trying to, you know, highlight and show that, you know, we exist, we're out there, we love fishing just as much. Um, and not only that, we have, you know, our people have been doing this 
probably longer than your people, but you know, like, and, and we're not representative and, that, and that's what, that's all we want to do is mm-hmm. just show that and, and, and build a community around that. Um, and then, you know, it, it gets, I can see the look and the faces that they make that it's like, Oh, okay. Um, n- now that makes sense. Um, but that's only happened to me a couple of times. Um, I really haven't, um, had to deal with that too much. Thankfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd also say, um, I mean, I would also kind of just point out that it's everywhere in the fishing space, especially online. It's just how, you know, I choose to spend my energy. You know, I'm not going to be reaching out to every single person that I see saying ridiculous things, right, that are racist. Um, I don't have the time or the energy for that. So um, just know that it is out there and it comes in many very different forms, whether it's overt or um, pretty subtle, um, you know, so, um, just something to kind of think about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then I think that there's a lot of ways that all of these can be applied industry level. Um, so what, what would you guys say are some ways that fishing brands, um, in particular, or the outdoor industry in particular has perpetuated whiteness in fishing? Um, and then, maybe just going into uh, different ideas on approach or response in setting the right tone and, and leading the way in anti-racist work um, that, you know, a, a lot of brands are stepping up to just now, um, you know, and, and kind of just talking that out a bit, a bit more. Yeah, I would say um, one of the ways that I'm seeing it being perpetuated is by not listening. And you can tell they have not been listening for quite some time. Um, you know, and you know, you saw it happen with Blackout Tuesday, for example, um, which I'm seeing kind of weeding out what's performative and what is actually being done, who is actually taking action. Um, you know, and also the obvious no representation. Um, and so as an approach and response, um, I'm actually a, um, anti-racist and uh, diversity and inclusion consultant. So I've been doing this work for, um, a couple of years. Um, and since Blackout Tuesday, in fact, <laughs> my email, my phone has been blowing up, um, through companies, you know, particularly fly fishing companies and the industry is asking for the same question. What's the right response? What's the right tone? Um, you know, my question, um, is, you know, typically is back at them, you know, have you looked internally, um, you know, because I believe that this type of work starts with the self, um, you know, really taking a hard look at leadership in the industry, um, you know, take, take one company, for example, maybe your favorite brand, you know, do you know if their CEO is actually doing this work? Um, do you know if their CEO is empowering their um, leadership team to also do the same work? You know, are they taking a step back? in assessing their own company and how they perpetuated this, um, you know, whiteness in the outdoor space, you know, the impact that they're creating. So it's a lot of work and it's not going to take a quick fix to do overnight. Um, so I've been, um, very busy (laughs) over the last few months, um, really just kind of consulting and talking with these companies in, in these questions, you know, and creating plans and action, um, on how to do better essentially and how to be more inclusive and, and how to respond versus react. 
um, you know, because um, people of color, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color, we've been talking about this for a long time. And so this is not new to us. And so it just seems like all of a sudden the industry was slapped in the face of, oh, this is a real thing. <laughs> what do you think your people of color have been telling you, whether they work for you or, you know, people that are in the industry just enjoying the sport? You know, we've been saying this for so long. And so, um, you know, like I said, you can really tell who's being performative and who's actually taking the action. So I highly recommend, whether it's me or anyone else, is hire a consultant because it's really helpful to take a step back and really just have um, someone show you your blind spots in a non-judgmental way of, uh, you know, considering like coaching of have you thought of it this way? You know, have you, you know, um, really asking these hard questions and really being able to assess um, where your company is at is going to be really helpful. Um, and I just want to point out there that this work is not cheap at all. So just mm-hmm. as a, uh, as a side note, it's, it's, that's the only way to create change is yeah. to reveal blind spots and, and really have those deep conversations. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't really have that much to add to that, except for the fact that, you know, people of color do, they can't tell. Um, when it is performative and not actually genuine um, and what companies are doing. Um, I mean, because we pay attention. And like Erica said, this is this has been on our minds for a long time. We've all had discussions with each other. Um, this is not new for us. And so we all, um, we kind of all understand and um, recognize uh, what's performative and, and what, what's an actual genuine. Um, steps that are being taken um yeah yeah I think uh you know this idea that it's a quick fix or that it's a quick response or that it's you know a uh one post on Instagram or whatever it is um is just is not not the way because I think that this timeline is lifelong and that's what some brands are, are, are failing to understand. Um, but, but yeah, I think that kind of being able to tap into those blind spots, become aware of them, um, and then move on from that is, is definitely one way that they can be showing up and, and doing the work. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I hope it's been interesting because I've definitely seen, um, a lot of different responses across the board, and I it's it's really good that uh, you know consumers are pointing out these uh, failed responses. Uh, but I just I just sort of wonder what then that response will be, and how they kind of take into account uh, the criticisms that are very much warranted. Um, and, uh, and so I've seen that a lot on Instagram and Facebook and some of these other spaces. Uh, but yeah, um, thank you guys. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I have, uh, for the, for the questions that I have here, but if there's anything else that you guys want to talk on, um, I, I have time. I have all the time. <laughs> uh, you just kind of brought up a, a quick point of, um, uh, kind of other people kind of uh, seeing stuff and, you know, saying something. And mm-hmm. I just want to say, like, Black and Indigenous people of color, we're exhausted. Yeah. We're tired. 
we're typically only the ones to speak out on these issues. And um, so really encouraging white folks to do the work, <laughs> which is, you know, understand that we're tired and it's not up to just us to um, educate. Um, you know, white people can educate white people, white people can educate the industry. And so it's really awesome to see other white um, folks speaking out as well um, to where I don't have to, you yeah, know, it's like I'm yeah. too exhausted for that. I don't have the time for that. So right. um, it's really awesome to see the, the community in the industry grow when that happens. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, um, just that kind of thing that allyship has been uh, a relief and I hope that it can continue. Um, you know, and mostly I do see a lot of, um, you know, women speaking up and I would just kind of want to, a lot those men, <laughs> you know, protecting, you know, not protecting as like a white savior, but like, you know, how are you, um, what are you doing, you know, in the space, in this industry um, to make it better? And so really just want to kind of call that in. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Having those white men as allies and feminists, it's, it's okay to be a male and a feminist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so valid. Yes. I definitely agree with her. Yeah. For the BIPOC folks who have tuned in, I want to acknowledge the space that I take up as yet another white female creative and another white female community founder. I want to let you know that this platform is not a place for white woman feminism. I think it's really harmful to allow that type of feminism to be the dominant paradigm, and I am committed to intersectionality. I acknowledge that my whiteness will undoubtedly inform mistakes that I make when it comes to anti-racist work and journalism but I will continually strive to do better and make women and waiters representative and welcoming. For white people tuning in, with all my best, I hope this leaves you uncomfortable as it did me, but I hope it leaves you curious, intentional, and understanding the importance of learning more. Anti-racist work is not easy. It is not comfy. It is not work that can be done all at once, as I have come to find out. It feels like when you open one door, and realize something about yourself and your behavior, there are a hundred more doors to open. My best advice as someone who is not an expert but is also going through this is to incorporate self-care and a system of learning that allows for you to commit to allyship long-term. There's no easy way out. There's no checking off a box and closing it off. My other piece of advice, especially if you are a member of a brand or community or company, is to hire Erica as a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. Her consulting company is Real Consulting. That's R-E-A-L Consulting, which stands for Reconcile, Evolve, Advance, and Lead. They provide a variety of services from individual coaching to online learning to organizational guidance. You can read more about their offerings on their website, consultreal.org. Thank you again to these incredible women, and be sure to check out their Instagram platforms, Awkward Angler, A-W-K-W-A-R-D-A-N-G-L-E-R, and Real Fly Native, R-E-E-L underscore F-L-Y underscore N-A-T-I-V-E, as well as Brown Folks Fishing on Instagram. You can find Erica and Sherilyn's contact info below. Thanks for listening and mindful fishing. I hope that time spent on the water this summer can serve as a place to let some steam roll off and give your emotions a break, but also a place that continually reminds us of the privilege in being able to fish or fly fish 
and the work that still needs to be done to create a more equal and welcoming outdoor recreation space. Thank you.